Today's podcast is brought to you by Gooder. Gooder is a uh, sunglass company that uh, sponsors us. One of the things that I love about this as somebody that can be a little absent-minded is the cost. They are $25 sunglasses that are much, much better than the gas station uh, sunglasses that you might think of at that type of price point. I recently misplaced my sunglasses and I, you know, one of the things that uh, happens at that point is a lot of grief and, uh, you know, self-loathing. I had none of that. I was able to place an order and uh, get a new pair sent out. Uh, I placed it at gooder.com. That's G-O-O-D-R.com. And they have got a wide range of uh, styles to choose from. They are all polarized. They're non-slip, no bounce, and they just are wonderful. They look great. Uh, you might see Sergio Garcia wearing these on tour. He's somebody that, that wears them. And they are uh, UV protected. So I would uh, highly recommend these. And if you use the promo code TFE at checkout, you will get 15% off. So go to gooder.com. That's G-O-O-D-R.com. And use TFE for 15% off your order and you get free shipping above $50. So go get yourself some sunglasses and get ready for spring and summer. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today, I am joined by the excellent writer, statistician, you know, player consultant, Joseph LaMagna. Uh, Joseph came on earlier in the year to preview the season, so I figured it'd be good to catch up and talk about the first uh, month plus of golf on the West Coast. So you guys can find more uh, from Joseph. He's written a couple pieces on the Fried Egg. He's working one on one uh this week uh, about Riviera, but uh, you can find all of his writing at uh, findingtheedge.substack.com. Finding the Edge, it's a basically bi-weekly newsletter that people can uh, subscribe to for free. So Joseph comes on to talk about com- some players that he's been impressed with, disappointed with, and just some general uh, trends for the start of the golf season. All right, Joseph, welcome back. I uh, I know you're a big football fan slash, uh, you know, you, I think you might dabble with some of your own capital in football. Any big takeaways from the Super Bowl? Well, I, I don't think it counts unless you said it. So it's lame to say that I had money on the Rams without expressing that publicly. But I did do very well on the, on the Rams from a future that I placed back in September. I still had a really bad year betting on the NFL. So I'm, I'm excited about the way it ended, but still feeling shameful going into fall of 2022. Little, little bittersweet. It was, uh, it's an interesting game. It, it, you know, as always, I, I got, I missed the start of it because of golf, which is, you know, becoming an annual tradition, but 
you know, it, it's always hard when you get in, or you get into a game later, especially the Super Bowl. Miss all the early ads, and you know, I was watching it, but I, you know, I had my my daughter bouncing around too, so it was a uh, it was a little bit different Super Bowl than years past. I saw a couple comments that the broadcast ended pretty flat, which I, I agree with in retrospect. But I enjoyed the game; I thought it was a great game. Uh, yeah, it, it was pretty good. I, I think the ending was a little anticlimactic with that, uh, that handoff and you, you, everybody, I think everybody expected Burrow to do what he had uh, did the previous two weeks and it just didn't, didn't really come to fruition. Yeah. It's just nice when the critique isn't only on golf commentary. So get to see that in, in football too. All right. Speaking of golf, <laughs> you, uh, you got me over there. Uh, I'd love, uh, you know, you're obviously our uh, our resident stat uh, stat expert here, and uh, and just in general, smarter than I am. So I'd love to to hear a little bit about your takeaways early from the year. You know, some players that you've really been impressed with. Sure. Well, I don't know if it's true that I'm smarter about this stuff. So hopefully, I, I don't. Well, I'm an I'm an idiot. So you know. <laughs> um, yeah, I think generally, I don't make too much of some of these events in that you know the way the leaderboards separate and how demanding some of these shots are or aren't uh, i'm not putting a lot of stock in events like the american express like waste management honestly or wm uh but i've still been impressed with some players i think that two of the biggest stories which i'm sure maybe we'll get into i'm seeing a lot from justin thomas I, th- I think he's showing some real flashes of playing at an elite level, top one, two, three player in the world. Uh, also really intrigued with Dustin Johnson and potentially the equipment change with his driver could be a catalyst for strong performance. And that I'm seeing that in the data in really small sample size, but it's something to be excited about if you're a Dustin Johnson fan. I uh, I actually wanted to talk about JT. I was, I was on a f- long flight today and I was kind of digging into JT because... You know, this week was extremely impressive from JT, given how poorly he putted. But then you kind of go back through really the last four or five years. And I think that's kind of been the story As you look at his career. He's got 14 PGA Tour wins, which is extraordinary for a player his age. But, you know, eight of them came in a two year stretch where he putted above average. And uh, since then, you know, pretty much every other year. He's been a below average putter, and this year is uh is it's been very bad. I, I agree. So the putting has been a consistent shortcoming for Justin for a while now. The positive is he knows what to work on. It's it's and that's the type of thing that can flip pretty quickly, even if it's been bad for quite some time. But I like to look at how somebody's putting across different distances, and Justin's been poor across different distances so that that's it's concerning that overall the putting performance has been bad he's consistent at least (laughs) yeah that is true but again as everyone says like you can get hot putting for one week that's absolutely true I think the way Justin's hitting the ball right now he's somebody to watch this year and if the putting just comes around a little bit he's going to be in contention all the time yeah, this I I was thinking I you know I picked him uh, on the shotgun start for this week at Waste Management and I think he's a really good pick at Riv, a place that he almost won a few years ago just because of how well he's hitting the ball and eventually putts drop, but at the same time I think like where where we want to see Justin Thomas get to is is kind of 
capped on him becoming just an average putter, which which seems, you know, easy. But, you know, we've seen so many players, whether it be, you know, Adam Scott, Sergio Garcia come to mind as players that just simply have been hampered by their inability to make just enough putts to win. Like, obviously, you know, ball striking is what gets you in contention. And I think like I nobody's arguing that to be a great player, you need to be a great ball striker, but to win a lot and maybe win above expectation, you need to make a lot of putts. Yeah, I think it gets lost sometimes in the some of the modern talk about stats that people often diminish the role of putting, but putting's whether you can predict it or not is a different question from whether it's important or not. Like it's it's very rare that somebody wins a golf tournament without putting well. So I I push back a little bit when people diminish the role of putting because it makes up a lot of scoring. Yeah, I think uh, I think you look at JT and he's kind of in that same bucket that Kyle Morikawa is in. Is like a week where he puts well, he's he's probably going to win and it's going to look really easy. But you know, it just doesn't happen very often. So you know, I think that's the it's just figuring out you know it, somehow what week they're going to go down for the guy. Um, what, what are you seeing with Dustin Johnson? That's a, it, it's a switch to the stealth. Is that, is that what the, what's, uh, what's giving you all this confidence? The switch to the carbon age? Well, it's more so when we did our original pod, I'd said, I think Dustin could be somebody who regresses and he was third in the world at the time. He was hitting the ball errantly off the tee pretty much all of 2021. That's concerning. He, said that he likes this new driver a lot more. He hit it very straight at Farmers. If Dustin Johnson is hitting the ball reasonably straight off the tee, he's very difficult to beat. He's made strides in his wedge play, and he's actually become one of the best putters in the world. So, it, I mean, if he's just hitting it reasonably straight, he hits it so far that that's a really tough guy to beat when there's no discernible weakness. Yeah, it's interesting with DJ because he's had these a little bit down years, which for a down DJ year is, is a very good year. Absolutely. And I think the clear difference, if you look at driving accuracy, however, you know, I'm not a huge fan of like fairway percentage or something like that, but at least in the, the rankings that I create. How, how, do you, how do you look at fairway accuracy, it, you know, in general terms? If, if for a layman to understand if you're not looking at fairways hit. Yeah, I mean, we, <laughs> I have some tools written that are, are getting pretty precise about how, where, you know, the width of misses and, and things like that that are not necessarily easily replicable. Um, but what's illuminating about looking through some of that data, Dustin Johnson and John Rahm are on totally different planets when it comes to driving accuracy. Uh, and I know, like, there are people who will say, Bryson DeChambeau, once you control for length, like he's hitting it just as straight as the top golfers in the world. It's not true. Like Bryson is right at the bottom in terms of how accurately he hits the ball. Once you've controlled for that, Dustin's pretty low and Rom is, you know, like a top 40 uh, most accurate driver in the world. So it's, it's really rare that somebody's both accurate and long. Rom and, you know, like a Hovland are some of the exceptions to that. And if Dustin can get kind of into the middle of the tour, like somewhere around 100th, he, he's really dangerous. So I, he'll still be less accurate than Rom, I would expect. So, so the, concept, the concept you're kind of talking about is, 
the guy that hits it, let's just, you know, I don't want to throw Brian Gay under the bus, but Brian Gay hitting it, whatever percentage, say 62%, and hitting it 280 out there, that 62% accuracy shouldn't be the same number as, uh, you know, Rom hitting it 320 and uh, hitting 55% of fairways. Like, those those two things aren't generally equal, right? Correct, correct. And then you can get ridiculous with some of the examples, which I think is worth it, of saying, hey, sometimes there's drivable par fours where the player's not even trying to hit the fairway, right? Like 10 at Riv. Or, you know, there might be a drivable par four where going into a greenside bunker is a really good location. Player leaves himself in there. 0 for 1 in terms of fairways hit, but it's in an advantageous spot. So you can't get carried away with driving accuracy, even though it might tell a decent picture over a long period of time. But you're right. I wouldn't treat a Brian Gay 62% in the same way that I would treat a John Rom 62%. No offense to Kimberly. <laughs> she, she really outfits him well. <laughs> Sidebar, if anybody's read that article. Um, but anyways, uh, I, I, you know, one thing I did want to, you know, I'm curious about, I think comes up now with, um, especially with how many holes are becoming just, you know, sure bet drive, you know, go for the green, like 17 at, at uh, Scottsdale, 10 at Riv this week are examples where analytics have, have t- everybody pushes it up by the green. Now, how, you know, We've gotten to this point where we adjust, like where we say everybody's going for the green, but the reality is people aren't going for the green. They're going, they're aiming right of of seventeen at Scottsdale, aiming left of ten at Riviera. They're playing out, you know, they're they're hitting it the right distance, but they're in no way going for the green. How can we start to look at these par, short par fours and and determine what is actually a real attempt at going for the green? Yeah, that I mean, that opens the door to a lot of things you could discuss, right? Because first off, you might see a graphic on TV that says going for the green, you know, has a much higher success rate versus laying up. And they're probably writing some definition, like if player hit the ball more than 260 yards, they were going for it. And the issue with that is like when Harold Varner topped his tee shot on 10, at Riviera a couple years ago, if that gets classified as laying up, he wasn't, right? And so that's one point. That's a great point. It's one point it's important to make. There's another point that's important to make, which is that there is information contained in the fact that the player went for it. So what I mean by that is the players, let's say you have to be really accurate to go for a drivable par four. It's probably more of the accurate players are the ones going for that. So if you said to a player who laid back, you should be going for it because it's advantageous, yet he sprays the ball, it might not be optimal for him to go for it, right? So there is actually information baked into who was going for it and who wasn't. But to, to answer your original question, club selections, one way you can kind of do that, if you know that a guy hit driver and he hits his driver typically like 295 yards and the the hole is 300 yards and you might be able to infer like that was a true go for it attempt um but to get to your point of are they going at the flag or not or like how aggressive are they being it's really difficult to do at you know with computer code i think you got to be watching it's a, it is almost to the point where golf would 
have so much more interest if the, the miking situation, like if every player was miked, that's how you could effectively do it eventually is if every player was miked and, you know, they said their club, they said their target, that's how you could start to determine this kind of stuff, correct? Yeah, or, you know, if you were as specific as asking players to input after the round, whether they went for it or not, like that's one way you could actually do it. I'm not sure that would be particularly insightful. And no. the players probably wouldn't <laughs> want to do that. So I'm not advocating for it. Um, but I think regardless, as a general rule of thumb, if people are curious whether or not a player is going to go for it, there has to be a heck of a lot of trouble for them to not go for it. And the wedge has to be wherever you're going to lay up to has to be a pretty easy shot. And so at Riviera, you're not bringing on any true hazard risk by sending it up by the green. And that's an extremely difficult wedge if you lay it back. So the guys just aren't going to do it. Yeah, you know, like um, at last week at Scottsdale, is I was, you know, I was watching and uh, Justin Thomas and Cantlay hit it effectively in the same spot about 30 yards short of the flag right of the center bunker. Like, you know, and it, it was very, it seemed to be very clear that that that's where they wanted to hit it because then they hit a wedge into the upslope. You know, it was a very simple wedge shot. And, you know, when you push up to pin high there, you bring all kinds of other issues into into the mix. And, um, and it becomes a much more difficult. And it's like, but that gets categorized as going for it because it would have been, you know, roughly you know, 10 yards short of the green, but it's just like, you know, that's not going for it at all. That's a layup. And and it's a, it's a really kind of almost become, especially with Ted Riviera, a, dis, a, a disingenuous take that everybody's going for it because they're all aiming 25 yards left and, and, and by ver- and trying to push it up there about pin high. And that's, that in itself is a layup, you know? Agree, and I actually think players fall victim to this too. Just an anecdote that I'll never forget. Rory McIlroy, I think 2019, someone can look this up. Before the event, they asked him about whole 10 at Riviera, and he said, well, the the numbers say to go for it, therefore I'm going to be going for it. And I, I watched him on Thursday rip a three-wood like directly over the flag and into a bunker <laughs> and short-sided himself, and then makes like a seven-and-a-half-footer for par, it's like that's bad advice if you just reduce it down to should I go for it or not. You need to think about where you're leaving your ball. And some courses it may not matter, but at number ten at Riviera it does matter. And uh, it's a it goes back to your point of sometimes you like you said maybe Rory just needs a little bit better strategy. I do feel that way. <laughs> um, back to. Uh, Impressive players. You know, you got two big names. Is there anybody else that you've been particularly impressed with? I mean, some of these are the same. I I don't react to short-term changes very much. So I think a lot of it would be similar to players that we had talked about on the original pod. But yes, I mean, Sung J M has played well to start this year. Uh, Zalatoris, I'm very high on. We saw what he could do at Farmers, and that's one of that the distance. Few. It, the distance is a really big deal, and. Zalatoris is one of those who 
knows the numbers. He knows the strategy. Him putting on distance is something people should pay attention to. And then he comes out, almost wins at Farmers. So, do you know offhand, like you know, how much further he's hitting it? And in in, can you put into kind of layman's terms what that means for his driving? You know, statistics like what what a what a leap you know he made from you know twenty twenty one to where he's now hitting it. It seem seemingly fifteen to twenty yards longer. Uh, it at, anecdotally, when you look where he's hitting the ball, um, what does that mean statistically? And then you know, so if he picks up X amount of shots, then over the course of of tournaments and and a season, I say, I say the short answer is to expect somewhere around like a two tenths of a shot increase. So almost a shot a shot a tournament. He's saving himself. Yeah, and it, it depends on the course. Depends on how straight you hit the ball. But, you know, one point I will always make about distance is that a lot of people focus on like, okay, what is five yards worth or what is 10 yards worth? But where it really racks up is when you can start clearing hazards that other players can't clear. And then it's not a five yard difference. It's you cleared the bunker and player B didn't. So you picked up like 30, 35 yards on that player after it's done rolling. So... Uh, there was a Sean Martin article, I believe, where Zalatoris calls this out explicitly. And that's the benefit of distance, in my opinion, more so than just this incremental gain. But yeah, I would say somewhere around two tenths of a shot off the tee would be a reasonable expectation for Zalatoris. Yeah, the the analogy I always like to use is like a pitcher in baseball is in, you know, a power pitcher. Like every day that Araldus Chapman comes to the comes to the park, he's thrown a hundred right and a guy you know cubs this is two cubs but kyle hendricks a guy that you know could barely touch 90 <laughs> like if that sinker ball is not sinking he's got nothing but araldus chapman every day has 100 and and that is just you know hard to hit and obviously there are two different types of pitchers but it's the same kind of thing with with uh with golfers it's like if you hit it 310 320 Every day you show up, you have one elite trait and it doesn't go anywhere. You know, no matter what, you still have that power. It's actually probably the only reliable thing in golf is is distance. And it's showing up every day you come to the come to the uh, golf course. I, I will say the putter, the putter is no good. It is. Uh, it's it's frightening on the weekend and. I uh, I can't get it out of my head. It, it, it kind of makes me sad because he seems like such a good dude. And uh, I, I just, that's my, my concern with Zell Torres is I think there's, he's going to be a cash machine, but I, uh, you know, if, if the arm, uh, if the arm block ever gets outlawed, that, that'd be a not fun thing to watch. Yeah. I, I think if the arm lock factor could be something that really ends up derailing him, but in general, I don't see Zalatoris as quite as poor of a putter as I guess a lot of people do, especially from longer range. Uh, but I I mean, I have eyes. So watching him come down this stretch at Farmers was unsettling. But you never know. Like, that's the type of thing that can turn around pretty quickly. Yeah, I think like that's one of the things where I would love to see golf stats uh, even get better is like, you know, I think we look at everything in apples as apples to apples, but you know, back nine putting versus front nine on Thursday putting shouldn't be considered the same. 
you know, and, and that's where I think some more granularity because the sample size of these guys' careers becomes so big where, you know, it'd be great on coverage to start to see, hey, you know, this is, you know, his putting stats, but, you know, on the on in the final rounds, this is what his putting stats because you, we might see, we might learn things about players both good and bad, you know, that there are a lot of misconceptions about, right? Yeah, I, I'm careful about that, I guess, and I maybe don't believe in some of that quite as much, but I'm not saying there's nothing to being clutch. I think where maybe that might be most insightful is players playing when it doesn't mean a whole lot. So if you're tied for 55th place on Sunday on the back nine, like maybe removing some of those putting numbers would add significance. So I think mm-hmm. that is something that could be interesting. I don't know how hard Charlie Hoffman was grinding over his putts yesterday. I think he was just trying to get out of there. <laughs> Ironic thing about when you're trying to get out of somewhere and trying to hurry your way out in, in golf is usually you play your worst, take the most shots, and that would take the most time. Yeah. Or, I mean, if you want more granularity, strokes gain dropping your ball could be interesting to look at too. <laughs> He's uh, he's just got to be protected, protected by the rules. So you know, we're putting you on the spot here. Small samples, things you you know you don't like. Are there are there anybody? Is there anybody that you've been disappointed by? I think I need to bring up your boy, and I'm just curious for your thoughts. But it's a little bit of a tough start to the year for Sam Burns, and and part of what we true. hadn't talked about that I, I wanted to bring up with you. I think part of the reason I was just slightly bearish on Burns coming into this year I haven't watched him in person for a time I mean I have I've walked with his group before but it does seem like a lot of his shots are kind of these stock PGA Tour shots right like a really high long drive like a lot of shots similar trajectory I mean I could be wrong this is anecdotal Uh, and I, I do wonder how when you get into demanding setups like a major championship sometimes you need to have some different shots he hasn't done particularly well in majors. And part of what was boosting the world ranking are wins like at Sanderson, uh, Valspar, you know, some of these setups that aren't quite as demanding. So that that's just, I don't want to knock on his game too much, but that's kind of where I'm coming from and seeing, is Sam Burns a top 10 player in the world? We haven't gotten to Bermuda, Bermuda season, A. You know, he's playing out on the West Coast. You got a Louisiana boy out there on the West Coast. But I think that there's validity to that because, you know, where where you grow up, what type of golf you play matters, right? And we see that. Like Sahith Thagala is a good example. Like I'm I'm really curious to see how he plays because we haven't you know really seen him. We haven't seen him play a full PGA Tour schedule. Like you know he just was playing on on the West Coast where we see players players that love playing there play well there regularly. Like it it is a you know the greens lead to some distinct differences than you see statistically across the year and likewise when we come to florida and in a week you see guys that pop on on bermuda all the time kevin kisner perfect example guy you know is does nothing and then all of a sudden you get to bermuda and he's a factor again and i think burns probably will fall into that because you just listed off courses that he's played well at they're all bermuda court bermuda courses and you know grasses matter and in, in, in playing in different climates everybody has been there that's played you know a, a lot of golf across the country is there's certain places that you just play better golf at for whatever reason and i think that's the that's the the 
the thing with with Burns. Ob- obviously, I think there is some credence to that, and we've seen so little of him in major championships and on demanding setups because he's a relative newcomer to this, you know, upper echelon of golf. That that's something that will be uh, very interesting to watch over the year. And and you start to then look like I think like when I think about what you said, and you start to look down the world rankings right now, it is like. You look at the top 10, and I don't think there is a spot where Sam Burns fits in above any of the 10 guys there. Yeah, and again, to go back to major championships, those do drive the world rankings in that they have really strong fields. It's just something I've been increasingly watching, and it kind of transitions to John Rahm, is if I have two players who hit the ball about the same distance and about the same accuracy, if one hits it way higher than the other one, I mean, I'm thinking about what that looks like in the wind, and that's why everyone's optimistic about John Rahm. But he is a machine, and I love the way he hits that controlled cut. He he can flight his ball. Like, there's not a setup in the world where I expect him to struggle, and I don't think the same is true of somebody like a Sam Burns or take it to an extreme, Bryson DeChambeau. Well, that's the thing with Rom too, is that you know that when if you watch John Rom play golf, especially in person, you know that there's a lot more in the tank than what goes out there on on a daily basis in terms of how far he's hitting the drive. Like he's a guy that is, I think, one of the things like with with golf, and it's interesting with this Bryson experiment because we've kind of seen all ends of the spectrum of it um, in, in in the last year and a half where you think, oh my God, this is totally the way to moments like recently where like this doesn't necessarily seem like the smartest course of path. But the guy, the, I think one of the things with most golfer that play really well is they're extremely comfortable with who they are as a golfer. And I think since the moment that John Rahm has come on the PGA tour, he's known who he is. And he's been, you know, just working on making himself the best golfer he could be without looking at others. And I think that's something really valuable because he's somebody that like Rory fell victim to looking at, at and, and Finau similarly looking at what Bryson was doing and going after it. But like Rom, you know, he's never done that. He just he's just like you said, a machine. Yeah. And I think something else for people to pay attention to with John Rom is we've just gone through some events that really don't have a lot of separation on the leaderboard. Waste like, uh, management goes to a like the Amex. Both, <laughs> where both is, of them, where right? Is and cussing. So, I mean, exactly. And he's still performing well. Take him to Muirfield Village. Take him to some of these other setups where you actually can separate yourself a bit more. And you'll see what he does, which is also an important point about thinking about something like strokes gained in general like if the leaderboard's really condensed and it's harder to separate yourself that's also reflected in your strokes game so you you can't take it as gospel without any context around it so if you wanted if there was some like say the FedEx Cup was a bone or say the pip we'll just take the pip if the, if the pip was bonused out to players based off their strokes gained as opposed to their like meltwater mentions and popularity whatever the hell that formula is uh if it was if it was based off of strokes gained and strokes gained total if you so if you were advising a player um you would tell them like a good player you tell them to go to the hardest setups where it's easiest to separate in order to do that right basically so it depends on who the player is right if 
you are extremely accurate off the tee and you're an extremely good ball striker, I want to make sure you're playing Muirfield Village. So that's absolutely true. And maybe you'd avoid a setup like waste management where it is harder to separate yourself, especially if you're an elite player. All you have to do is hit it farther, right? <laughs> uh, you pretty much have to avoid... <laughs> Driving accuracy is actually pretty strongly favored at, at waste, but it's not... You just have to avoid the cactuses and some of these holes sprang one out of bounds. Like hole five is a good example to look at of why certain players do well at waste management. Like you just got to avoid some of these really bad spots, especially when greens don't have severe contouring plus there's short grass around the greens. It's going to be difficult to separate yourself with iron play. And so you might gain a little bit off the tee with Rom's accuracy, but it's hard to separate a good iron shot from a bad iron shot. So with what you said about short grass around the greens, where it's severe, say a concession last year uh, where it was really severe, then you see iron play really come to the forefront. But when, when it's less severe, it keeps everybody in it. It has to be really severe for short grass to provide much of a test on somebody's chipping, which is unfortunate because I, I like to see some of the short grass set up sometimes, but these guys spin the ball so much. And when the lie is predictable, they're able to get up and down effectively when they're short grass. So that's, uh, you know, something to watch for at Genesis this week. Not always the trickiest to get up and down, though the, the bunkers can be pretty penal. Yeah, so with with Riv this week, um, it, it you know obviously it's one of the courses that correlates the least to driving accuracy. I'm curious your take on that, and and then also I know I saw people talking about how important short game was here because of how hard it is to hit the greens. So I see it very similarly from a driving accuracy perspective that. Uh, definitely not somewhere you have to be particularly accurate off the tee. And this kind of goes back to why Dustin Johnson generally does very well here. It's his favorite course on the planet, I believe he has said. Uh, So I see that. And if you want an example, one that I usually look at is hole 15 here. I I know you know the golf course, I'm sure, far better than I do. but Long par four. Uh, and the green kind of opens from the left side. Big, deep bunker uh, front right. Really, really tough green, too. And a great hole. Uh, and, then a, and then a bunker that protects the inside of the dog leg, kind of. Yep. And that's generally pretty highly correlated with distance and not as much accuracy. If you go onto last year's leaderboard and you look at where Dustin Johnson hit his four drives, they are all over the place, miles apart from one another. And I think he made three pars and a birdie on that hole. It's when there's short grass and you're not really introducing a hazard, it you can you have some room to miss the ball at Riv. It's not a huge difference between being in the fairway and in the short rough on a lot of these hole locations. And then you contrast that with something like Tory, or a better example would be Muirfield Village, where if you're in the rough, it's a huge difference from if if you're in the fairway. Obviously, different grasses. Uh, you know, Riv the rough is so short there. Um, for the these weeks, you know, I I I think back to like what Mike Clayton always says, which I'm always um, my ideology thinks about is really difficult shots from perfect lies are far more interesting than pretty media easy shots with a difficult lie, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I would agree. If I had a gripe. With Riv, I think sometimes missing the green can result in some easier up and downs than I'd probably like to see. But 
again, these guys just spin the ball so much that if you're going to have short grass, it's it's almost a necessary evil, to put it that way. I, I, I was curious what you think about this. I, I think whistling straights is actually like a sort of reasonable comparison for Riv. I mean, they're totally different, but in terms of the skill sets that they test and, and finding a greenside bunker being challenging, similarly hitting driver a lot, you have a little bit of room to miss off of the tee. Yeah, I could, I could actually see that. I mean, they, they're both, they're both like very strategic. Like they, the, the golf courses make sense from like the angles that draw back. Like they're very like, you know, Pete Dye built golf courses like golden age architects texted with angles and strategy like George Thomas did at Riv. So it makes like sense. And I think like where I would push back is like sometimes at, at, at good courses, it, it's better to miss the green in the right spot than it is to hit, hit the green and be in the wrong spot. When you get especially severely sloped greens like we see at Riff, like where you can be on the green and be totally screwed and saying, uh, I don't, you know, if I hit a really great putt, I'm, I'm going to be five feet away. Um, and you know, if you, if you leave yourself in the right spot chipping, you know, you, you've got a very easy, straightforward up and down. It'd have to be really severe contouring. You just generally don't see when someone misses the green having however you want to put it, lower expected value, as technical of a term as, as you want to put on it, they'd have to have a really difficult putt and a really straightforward chip for that to be possible. But I'm not saying it's it can never happen. I mean, last year, last year during the, right before the wind delay, they were about the hardest putts in the world. <laughs> yeah, ask Keegan Bradley about that. <laughs> That's, I mean, the fact that that happened last year is one of the most ridiculous things. I mean, that's all the type of things you have to think about with stats, right? Like, what is, uh, you know, did Keegan Bradley make a mistake going for it? Well, he put one from 30 feet off the green. Like, how is that represented in the stats? <laughs> um, scoring's been a, uh, I think, a little bit of a hot topic. I think it, it it blends with the tour tweeting out all their preferred lie announcements. Um, and then, obviously, there's... It, I feel like it's been a very docile year in terms of wind um, and a lot of courses have been wet, but the scores have been just insane. Just anecdotally as an observer watching is, is that true from a statistical standpoint? Barely. I mean, yes, the scoring is a little lower than so far, so far in 2022. If you look at identical courses compared to 2021, scoring is a little bit lower. I think, of the rounds so far, maybe like 55, 58% of them are lower than comparing to a year ago. I, I would attribute this almost entirely to wind. Some easier hole setups, especially at Sony, but in general, we haven't had difficult conditions very much this year. And when you don't have wind at, at Century, at Kapalua, they're going to tear it up. So I'm not making too much of it. And in general, I know this is something the fried egg generally <laughs> agrees with. I think people get carried away with scoring. I don't care if it's a, you know, if you're two under, or you're four under. I want to see how demanding the shots are. And so far this year, shots have not been demanding. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting that you say, you know, the the scoring from top to bottom isn't that much different, but the scoring at the top seems a lot different with with how low it's been comparatively. Yeah, I mean, Cam Smith and John Rahm took it really low at Kapalua, mm-hmm. so. Uh, I mean, that's something. And if you're, if you're comparing to a year ago, the field was also 
stronger this year because more guys got in with COVID uh, in, tw- in, in the previous year at Kapalua. So I, I don't see a whole lot there. If people are upset with it, I would attribute it to wind. I mean, it's we've had benign conditions for almost every round so far in 2022. What are your thoughts on uh, on the Saudi Arabia situation? I mean, it, it, it'd be remiss to not talk about that a little bit, um, given you know we, we're talking about the first five weeks of the year. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ambiguity around. I'm not sure I have a great sense of who actually might be leaving. And like, let's say Dustin Johnson were to leave, how different would the PGA Tour season be than in 2021 when he was? He doesn't play that often anyway. If he's he's gonna play Riv, I'd imagine he's still playing the big tournaments like Memorial players, all the majors. Does the texture of the tour change that much? If it depends who leaves, but I haven't heard of too many young stars that are rumored to leave. That's a, that's an interesting way to look at it that I hadn't really thought of is like if if you lose a DJ and a Bryson, let's just say they don't play that much anyway. They're still going to play the main events that I think you care about watching them in. Yeah, so it's like if they're if they play 10 events over there and they play 8 events between the majors and bigger events, they play the same amount of golf and and you don't you know, nobody's like clamoring for Bryson at the Rocket Mortgage. You know, like I, I, you know, that that event stinks with him or without him, right? Tim Tucker <laughs> might be clamoring for him at the Rocket Mortgage, but besides that, yeah, probably not too much. No, I. That's kind of the way I'm looking at it. I don't. It it depends who leaves. It definitely depends who leaves. But I don't think the tour product changes that much if a small percentage of those guys are playing in fewer events. Mo- again, Memorial, Genesis, the majors. As long as they're there, I, I think the product's pretty similar. We haven't talked about Charlie Hoffman yet, though. And if he leaves, like what, what, what the tour loses? I don't know what the drop zone policies are like in Saudi Arabia, but I, they could be even more penal. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, could be could be real tough for him if he takes a bad drop there, especially if he speaks out about it. Right. Um, all right, so looking forward, uh, we've got we've got Riv in the Florida swing. Do you have uh, do you have anything uh, anything you want to float out there as as a potential development we could see on tour, whether it's a player scoring, uh, you know, whatever it may be? Is there something that you're particularly looking forward to in the next month? I'm really into this idea of how high guys are hitting their drives and how that interacts with golf courses. So um, I think categorizing courses as looking at the width of misses and how that impacts scoring so Augusta being an example where you have a you have some room out there but if you really spray it you're in trees versus somewhere like Torrey Pines where a small miss is actually pretty similar to a big miss it's not that different of a penalty and thinking about how that interacts with skill sets like Bryson DeChambeau's that's kind of what I'm most focused on right now um, so I think we'll have some examples of that, like at TPC Sawgrass, Honda, at, yeah, Honda at Augusta. How do these guys who hit it really high and errantly perform in those setups versus somewhere like Tory? That that's kind of mm-hmm. what I, I think about it every week. But there are some extreme examples coming up in Sawgrass and Augusta mainly. Yeah, you know the 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 change over to Florida when you get like Honda and and API with the weather that you get there, 
you know, the wind in Florida and South Florida and Florida in general at this time of year is just brutal. It's awful. Um, and you know, it's like such a drastic change from the desert in California that these guys have been playing for a couple, a couple of months. It's, it's an, it's an interesting, um, wrinkle to the schedule. Right. And I, I guess one more point of things I'm looking forward to, I, I think one of the biggest storylines of the year is you got John Rahm. Maybe you could make an argument that Colin Morikawa is sort of there too, but who else is able to ascend to where they're playing close to that week in and week out? At this point, I would say that player is probably Justin Thomas. I I would agree with that. It's just that putter. And I, and I think like that's the thing. He could be that level consistency even as a bad putter. Yep, absolutely. And I do think... It's easy to get carried away with narratives. I think having bones on the bag will be valuable. Man, just just throwing uh, Jimmy Johnson under the bus. <laughs> I I don't have any opinion on Jimmy Johnson's ability to caddy, but I, I got to imagine that especially somewhere like Augusta, having bones on the bag will be useful. The putting seems particularly bad this year. He is heavy, heavy Greens book guy. Could that be anything? Have we seen anything with Greens books? I haven't seen much on that. I mean, Bryson's still putting very well. I, I haven't seen a whole lot to the Greensbook impact, but I would not attribute Justin Thomas's putting to the Greensbooks because he put pretty poorly for all of 2021. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, people can find your work at uh, findingtheedge.substack.com. Uh, Wonderful newsletter. They can find you on Twitter. What's your handle? It's at Joseph Lamagna, L-A-M-A-G-N-A is how you spell my last name. The Substack's free. It's uh, I highly recommend it. I almost recommend it more than the Fried Egg newsletter. You know, can't can't get all the way there, but it's it's right there. <laughs> so uh, go over there, and uh, we'll talk to you probably sometime before the Masters. Sounds good. Well, thanks for having me on. Enjoy Riviera this week, and maybe we'll see Dustin Johnson on Sunday with the trophy. Thank you for listening to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. As a quick reminder, it is a wonderful way to support the Fried Egg Podcast is by going to the pro shop and uh, getting some Fried Egg gear. Golf season is closing in. I mean, we're halfway through February. We're almost there. So if you go to proshop.thefriedegg.com, you can find a wide range of gear from t-shirts, hoodies, uh, polos, hats. We've got a ton of stuff over there, and uh, it supports the show and keeps us uh, keeps the lights on. So thank you for listening to another edition of The Fried Egg, and uh, we will see you next week. Oh, one last thing. This podcast was edited by the wonderful Meg Atkins. I'd hate to not include that. Uh, she does a great job, and thank you, Meg.